Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 105 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. Cannoli Fingers. And I'm joined here by my decadent co-host, former market maker, 20 years and current day retail trader, the celebrated son of House Street, who's brought to you over 200 deals gone public. Nowadays, you can catch him gallivanting in Europe. JJ, how's it going? Good, brother. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Doing great. And our guest is making her second appearance on the podcast. She began her professional trading career in 1981, making markets and options as a member of two exchanges. She has been the principal trader for several hedge funds. Her early success was recognized by Jack Schwager in his renowned Market Wizard series, The Sardine Trader. Linda <laughs> Linda, how's Sardine it going? Trader. Yeah. <laughs> how's it going, Linda? Thanks for joining us again. Pretty decent. Yes. All right. Yes. Yeah, so an interesting uh day today um in the markets. I I have to go back and look. Uh Linda, episode 19 was when you first came on. So we, you know, we really appreciate you coming on uh early on in the podcast. Uh that's so I put this about three and a half years ago. A lot of interesting things have happened. Uh, in the markets in the world since uh, just, I guess, yeah. How you been? Always. Uh, something's always interesting happening every year, every decade. Yeah. Yes. Been, good. been really yeah. good. Good, good. Glad to hear it. Uh, we also, we had, uh, we had Damon uh, on right after you episode 20. That's always, <laughs> always awesome. a memorable one for me. That was, that was a real great time. How's, how's Damon been? Is he, is he still um, uh, doing concerts? Still trucking away. Like- yep. Still trucking away. All right. Excellent. Excellent. So I guess we could start the conversation um, here. You know, obviously, like I said, it's been about three and a half years or so. Lots happened in the market and maybe some things we could touch on. And I'll let you kind of pick, you know, where you want to start. Um, we've had the COVID crash, subsequent recovery. Uh, we've had what the meme stock craze is going on. Now we got, you know, current situation we got going on this banking situation. Um, I'll probably missed some stuff in between. Is there anywhere you would like to start? Uh, no, not not in particular. I, I uh, I'm not the one to talk about meme stocks. They're not my wheelhouse. <laughs> and I don't play that game. But uh, you know, uh, I I trade uh, you know the assorted futures markets, about thirty different futures markets, and uh, like I playing in some stocks too. But I find uh, the futures primarily to be my wheelhouse. So mm-hmm. there you go. And today we're just about to ring the bell and touch that spike high on these S&Ps. Just a nice visible chart point. Uh, ding, ding, ding. It might be uh, another two handles up, 41.19 and pocket change. But I mean, that's my game. You know, I, I'm i technical. I'm 100% technical. Of course, I look at the seasonals and the cash on the sidelines and the sentiment and all that sort of stuff. But I uh, pretty much operate on the uh, intraday technicals and the dailies and the weeklies. Mm-hmm. Now, now futures have, is, is that what you started with, Linda? I started in the equity options. So I made markets uh, on first the Pacific Coast Stock Exchange, and then I was a market maker in Philadelphia. And in those days, the options exchanges were a whole lot more active. Nowadays, all the pits have pretty much gone electronic. So there's that that whole arena disappeared a good, I'd say, 15 years ago in the uh, in the U.S. But, um, you know, it's, it's such a, you know, lovely uh luxury to have uh, electronic execution and just one mouse click you can do some Jeez. decent size i mean there's no slippage the liquidity is fabulous you've got all kinds of volatility and 
could really go make a living in any one market, you know, even corn, if you were astute on, on working that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, uh, with futures, is there, um, I, I might've missed it when you said it, is uh, anything specific futures you gravitate towards? Well, the S&Bs have always been my, uh, my main future market. I mean, I started trading the S&P contract the very first day that it was listed. So, uh, you know, I think it has the best uh, intraday swings for day traders. It's got, um, you know, you've got the supporting market internals. So obviously on a day like today, you've got exceptional breadth for the second day in a row, pretty important. And that's because you have the small caps participating and so forth. But all of these or add some um, background flavor to the S&Ps, just overall market tone, color, you know, but despite all of that, I'm still triggering uh, just based on what is the play for that day. And if I can uh, build something into uh, holding for maybe anywhere from two to five days. That's wonderful. Um, pretty rare. I hold positions for more than uh, more than a week max, unless it's exceptional weekly structure. And you might only get a setup like that maybe once every quarter. So um, the frequency of occurrence is a lot less. But you know, I, I try to work several different uh, programs. I don't do the type of activity or the diversification of programs that I used to do when I had my fund. You know, um, I had uh, several support members then. So it's a, it's a different game. I'm just, I'm just, I'm back to being a lowly peon, you know, and I've actually <laughs> been uh, retired for seven years. So now I, I mix periods of tennis, you know, <laughs> Oh, when I'm nice. not injured, <laughs> then uh, tennis is my main game. And then when I get injured, uh, the markets are back oh to my main game. So, uh, yeah. yeah, healthy mix at this point well, in my career. Well, it's got to be nice having the, the having that luxury, um, you know, step away when you can. Uh, Linda, do you, you have any um, preference or maybe just speak to the, the, you know, maybe the pros and cons of, you know, uh, managing other people's money versus trading your own account? Um, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. Some people do very well trading other people's monies and other people do not, you know, they don't like that scrutiny. Um, these days it's, I mean, if you're going to do it right and have a fund or, you know, be registered as a, you know, CTA or something like that, the regulatory layers are deep and steep in price. So you got to make sure you can do something on size, you know, so if you're going to go that route, which is definitely, if you're younger and have a program that can be scalable, you want to think in that type of framework. Can I have a program that's scalable that I can do consistently, you know, not too much standard deviation on the bottom line. And, uh, you know, if you can raise money, you really need at least um, the, about a $50 million fund size, uh, preferably up to a hundred million, if you're going to be able to overcome all those uh, regulatory fees and stuff. Of course, there's other uh, types of uh, vehicles that you can use if you want to trade other uh, monies, you know, leader follower programs, uh, private family offices are a great source these days, but you're not going to get anywhere unless you have a real-time track record pretty much of three years. And, you know, people want to see your consistency in your style and, um, you know, but that's, that's sort of beyond the talk of, of our realm today. But I think if you're a retail trader and you could even think in those types of terms, whether you go on and aspire to manage money or not, sort of the missing the point, you know, the point is you have to think of yourself as being your own best client. 
you know? Mm -hmm. So if I am my own best client, you know, I have to have a, a niche or a consistent bread and butter game, a consistent style. I mean, it could be seasonals, it could be trend following, it could be a systematic volatility breakout, it could be short-term discretionary trading on the S&Ps, you know, using market profile or whatever tools you want. But whatever it is that you eventually choose to do, uh, you got to settle into that as your style, know all the nuances, and then after you've done all that exploration of trying different styles, I mean, even if it's options trading and so forth, you know, because there's a lot of different ways that you can skin a cat in there. Only after you've arrived at that, which can take about three years, you want to then start increasing your size, but not beforehand, you know, and that's a big mistake that people do is trying to get too big too soon. And uh, you really want to just see some consistency in the bottom line for a good period of time. Uh, in other words, <laughs> called trade management, right? <laughs> Until you can exactly. prove that you've exercised um, well thought out trade management through all types of markets, environment, bull markets, bear markets, flat markets, you know, then you can start to scale up. And that's where you then really become a real, a real profitable trader. Not that you can't make money, you know, scalping one lots in the S&Ps, but you know, for those who have two or three kids to put through college, pay a mortgage, so forth, it's a lot of, of planning and organization to create a business, structure your trading and program as a business. Exactly. It takes a lot of hours. I really think that people uh, grossly underestimate the amount of hours that it takes. So, but in the meantime, you know, it's still a fun game, you know, and it keeps the mind fresh. It's uh, technical analysis is one of those things that you can, you know, enjoy uh, studying, uh, you know, till you're 90 years old. So I, I like that aspect of it. Absolutely. It, it seems to me, Linda, that you still have like a deep love uh, for the game of trading uh, that it, it hasn't waned over the years at all. No, I mean, you know, you enjoy something. I feel very confident, you know, with uh, what I do. And so that's what makes it fun. And it doesn't matter, you know, if you're a golf player or tennis player or anything, when you feel proficient and confident, uh, it's always fun. But I also know that, you know, I am retired. So um, even though I'm sitting in front of my screens every day, go figure. <laughs> but, you know, I am. Um, there's lifestyle trade-offs, you know, so when I was, you know, working on becoming uh, what I did, you know, I'm putting all those hours in, probably worked 80 hours a week for years and years and years, weekends, everything, research and so forth. It's a trade-off in your lifestyle, you know, uh, friends, family, all those types of things. I was fortunate because I had a husband who was Mr. Mom, so he could take care of the kid, do the cooking, all that kind of stuff. And I could, um, you know, run my business. Um, that's not always, you know, everybody doesn't have that luxury always, you know, but you have to make choices and say, I'm, you know, choosing to put in the hours here and, uh, you know, other things are going to have to take a back burner. And, um, I think you have to consciously make that decision. Yep. Stay I'm not ahead. really, I'm not ready to do that anymore at this point in my life. You know, I want to go play tennis and travel and do other things. So yeah. That's awesome. And, you've, and you deserve it. You've, you know, the amount of work mm. that you've put in. Um, that's definite. And, and just want to say how excited I am to have you here. They're the reason that, you know, and I'm sure every, I tell this to everybody, you know, she's the reason why I got a job in the markets because I, I read what you did and 
in Market Wizards and how you went and got a job near the exchange. And I did the exact same thing. Ah, and, uh, good. And, I weas- and I weaseled my way in. So if not for you, that, you know, that's where I got the idea. I was like, and that's how I got Which my job. Which exchange did you, uh, did you was go a, down to? I was Vancouver Stock Exchange. And Vancouver? I started, ah. Yeah, because I'm ah. Canadian. And uh, so I was at Vancouver and uh, I was a bouncer in the, one of the nightclubs. I'd gotten a, a microbiology degree and then, of course, couldn't get in med school. I wasn't smart <laughs> it's enough. It's a radical zigzag career path there. I, I just, you know, I'm a typical South Asian kid, you know, and my parents wanted me to go to med school. I couldn't get in. I wasn't smart enough. So, uh, you know, I was a bouncer in this nightclub and all the VSE traders came in and that's how I got, they gave me liar's poker. I was hooked. And then I read, you know, Market Wizards and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, I'll go get a job. I went and got a government job, started wearing suits. All of a sudden, you know, next thing you know, I'm a, I'm what they call a phone chimp and, you know, working investor relations and then weaseled my way onto a trade desk. And that's all because I got the idea from you. So I'm always eternally grateful. Um, But it's not a straight line path, is it, huh? And it probably ended up being a lot more hours than you ever thought. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And and it, you know, I was just, all I did was liquidate uh, positions for insiders when they took companies public, you know? Uh, So I was a a liquidating guy and just feeding order flow to market makers. But then when I became a retail trader, oh my God, that was the hardest thing because then you have to do research. You know, when the bell rang, we used to go to the bar, you know, when the bell rings and you're a retail or a prop trader, that's when you actually start doing research and all your work. And I was like, oh man, this is hard. You can't cheat and you know, you can't hide trades in somebody else's inventory or, you know, (laughs) you know, I mean, (laughs) Those out trades. Ah, they went into the drawer, right? Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah, my boss used to always hide his tickets underneath the blotter if the trades weren't working out, you know, under his desk blotter. So, yeah, so <laughs> I think everybody that was on the exchange floors at one point or another has has their own war stories or has seen those oh, yeah. of others. So Yeah. So yeah, we you know, we totally respect because we I remember following, you know, you telling us your workflow and and how you would go through the charts and and all of that stuff and and that was early on in when I was a retail trader I just wanted to keep thanking you for that because it's a lot because of you that I got that discipline that I didn't have and I had to develop that discipline which is hard for me because I was inherently lazy so <laughs> you know but that's <laughs> but we owe we owe a lot to you for that thank you so much okay and here you are now yeah exactly just take a uh, quick second to shout out our good friends of the podcast, Apex Trader and Top Step Funding. Any listener of this podcast that has the skills to pass an evaluation can become a prop trader, fully funded by either Apex Trader or Top Step Funding. Our own micro futures trading community has many members who are now fully funded. No need to trade your own money. Keep 90% of the profits. To learn more, visit our website at microefutures.com. Uh, Linda, you've been trading for yeah decades now. I'm I'm curious uh, if your process, uh, your trading strategies have you know if you've added any or modified uh, some over the years. <laughs> Believe it or not, they have not. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. nothing has changed. You know, it's um, every couple of years there's a new. Uh, you know, news cycle, new story, new drama, you know, Arab Spring, MF Global, uh, you know, <laughs> Y2K, you know, flash crash, the list goes on and on and on. So you always 
um, expect that there will be things that you can't see around the corner, case in point, the pandemic, you know, so um, you have to recognize that models don't account for all these other uh, outliers that can come along. So you have to allow some uh, flexibility in your models that you know, there are things that we can't see. And when I say technical analysis, you know, for me, it's not really a forecasting business uh, per se, you know, trading. It's more uh, money management, where are the risk levels, you know, uh, and uh, support and resistance. And then, you know, you position yourself in the right, in the direction, you know, of your bias or your model or whatever, but then you see what the market gives you, you take what the market gives. So I don't project to certain levels. I can have targets like obviously today, the S&Ps are rallying the last day of the quarter. And there was that really visible spike high up here that 41.19, you know, 50, there's an unfilled gap on the chart above that. You know, if we reverted back down, which we're not going to today, you've got the previous days high and low. So essentially, that's the type of trader that I am. You know, where are the levels? What I like levels that everybody sees. So I'm not into this FIB stuff or, you know, GAN retracements. Not that it doesn't have value for people as a tape reading tool, but I'm always playing uh, by you know, is the market, you know, where are the visible levels that everybody sees are kind of magnets for the, uh, for the market, as well as that's what creates structure, you know, so I'm a pure swing trader in the way that I organize my structure highs and lows previous, you know, um, intraday highs and lows, uh, daily highs and lows, you know, and this is a game of looking at, uh, you know, is is there a degree of trendiness? Are we in a noise consolidating range? And so each day I come in, I'm really saying, you know, what is the play for the day? You know, am I looking to trade from the long side today? Or perhaps maybe we're four days up in a row or, you know, four days low to high and we might be due for a little bit high to low day. And then if that were the case, we did get our high to low day, we're probably going to get another low to high day the next day, a buying day, just because you already had this degree of trendiness. You know, and sometimes we have these little uh, uh, little consolidation, three bars of price overlap. And we can come out of that and then you're going to be moving again back towards a previous level. So, I mean, that's really simplistic there, but that type of process, um, you know, is really how I approach the markets. You know, I don't know where we'll be a month from now. Uh, I do a lot of sentiment work. I really like that a lot because it tells me indirectly sort of how much cash is on the sidelines. That cash doesn't have to come into the market. For example, right now, there is a ton of cash on the sidelines. It's also parked in money market funds, which are paying okay, you know, uh, but you can't you can't have a market going down when everybody's already bearish because it's, you know, telling me they're already all in cash. So uh, the sentiment work, you know, is just a background thing. And then we, uh, I, I frame it out with the, the short term Okay, is it today a, a trend day? If so, I want to see if I can establish positions in the first 30 minutes of the day. And then my stop's going to go at the low of the day. And then I try to hold positions overnight because there really is an edge to having overnight 
follow through, you know, unless the market's in a real consolidating mode and then might as well get out at the end of the day. And then once in a while, maybe once a month or once a quarter, there will be some market structure that does lend itself, you know, towards perhaps a three to four to five week run. So it's really, um, you know, just constantly updating the market structure as new data points, uh, you know, come on. So that was great. You said, you said a lot of good things that I want to um, follow up with you on. Um, for uh, for you to gauge the sentiment, uh, Linda, what what are you looking at? You know, I I'm a simpleton. I like the uh, put call ratio for the equities only, and uh, I usually keep a moving average of that. I like the uh, AAII sentiment readings. Those have been uh, they're they're sort of different groups. So AAII is a more mature uh, type of profile, you know, a little bit better capitalized than perhaps investors intelligence, you know, but there's about three or four surveys that are done each week that come out with that. And then the put call ratios and uh, that works for me. I don't use VIX as a sentiment indicator per se, because it's pretty much a hundred percent inversely correlated to the market's price. You know, it just represents the implied volatility, which tends to go up when people are buying puts, you know, so there's sort of a given there with a skew in it. But, you know, uh, I'm sure a lot of people consider that to be part of a sentiment reading. I don't interpret it that way. Uh, One of the market wizards in the latest book, um, Unknown Market Wizards, I believe is the name of it, uh, Jason Shapiro, we've had him on the podcast um, previously. He, um, I saw him tweet yesterday, he said he believes we're witnessing the biggest divergence between sediment and price action ever. Uh, is that a statement you would agree with? I don't know what time horizon he's looking at. Um, so, you know, if you wanted to look at weekly charts of these S&Ps, we've really been in a big, uh, you know, weekly range. So, I mean, is it diverging from a very uh, short term, uh, you know, thing? I, I'm not really sure. You know, a lot of these things, especially sentiment, you know, when you're going to make a statement like that are very context oriented. Does sure. that make sense? Sure. Yeah. OK, so I see the S&Ps. If I just go back over a two year time horizon, we're basically in the middle of that range. So, um, you know, and also there's the issue of different sectors, you know, so uh, I'm I'm sure that with the volatility in the banking sector, you know, perhaps that created a little bit more bearishness. But I mean, rightly so on that particular sector as it was falling out the downside. Now it's kind of landed with a thud, you know, so I guess you could say that there's been more of a divergence between the groups in particular, you know, we had the fangs, resurgence of the fangs at the beginning of the year tended to be up a pretty rather smart percent, you know, and the small caps um, were not participating. But of course, they're a little bit more overweighted with some of these regional bank type of stocks. Now, I think you're seeing that uh, go away today, the Russell's up pretty swiftly, and it's going to come out of a, a base there. Um so, uh, you know, most most people that do that type of work in the market would agree that the seasonals for the month of April are pretty strong. And, um, you know, that's what we're seeing right now. You know, cash 
you know, cash coming back in, you know, the market's going to squeeze higher until people do start to become more bullish. So maybe that's what he's, he's thinking of. But if I just look at the weekly, you know, the weekly S&Ps for two years, we're sort of right in the middle of a range. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, I was, yeah, I think I was the way I interpreted it. And I think he had some like follow-up tweets to it, I, I think was, Probably the sentiment of everyone thinks the market should be going down, you know, like, but, you know, here we are still climbing up. Um, but maybe that's just, I could be, you know, there's, um, you know, people get too caught up in the macro and that's yeah. the problem. So um, that's, I don't do macro. I don't do fundamentals. If I do, I'm likely to get the story wrong. I mean, 99% of macro stuff for me is money flows, you know, how much cash is on the sidelines and that will be reflected in the sentiment readings. But, uh, you know, just because there's prospects of a recession on the horizon does not necessarily mean the market goes down. There have been periods in history where the market still rallies, uh, even during a recessionary period. And so once you start doing this macro outlook, that's a very, very, very long time horizon. Somebody can be a, an astute macro, um, you know, analyst, and they can be right two years from now. You know, it doesn't mean that you're going to be right in a month or two months. So um, that's why I say the time horizon is really important. Sure, sure. Because the macro type of work, Linda, right? I mean, probably for, I imagine probably most people listening to this podcast and 90% of the traders probably doesn't apply to, right? That. I don't think most traders have the significant amount of capital that would force them onto a macro time horizon. Usually that's for, you know, funds that have billions of dollars and still need to move money. And you can't do that on the shorter timeframes like the technicals would allow you to do. But with that said, you can take a well-known entity like Ray Dalio. And uh, despite him being uh, proficient in macro, his stuff is 100% automated. There is no human uh, decision-making with the management of his fund. So, you know, people can talk certain ways, but are they positioned that way or are they just giving their outlook, you know? Yes, you know, 20 years from now, the icebergs will be melting, you know? <laughs> and half of Miami is <laughs> going to be underwater. So what good does that do you as a trader, right? Yeah. Well, let's hope, let's hope Miami doesn't get underwater. Really hope not. We're, we're a little too close to Miami. Too close Where do you to live? Um, I'm, I'm in the Palm Beach area. You're in, you're in Wellington, right? I am. I didn't know you were in Palm Beach. Yes, yes. I need I need to come down to to watch some of those polo matches. Yeah, yeah. last well, time you only got about two more weeks in the season there. So, oh man, dude, oh, is, is there any is there any uh betting on polo? Is that is that a thing? Because oh, I'm sure there's stuff on the side. But... <laughs> then I would be I'd be real interested. Yeah, I think that's a yeah, not really. It's not a it's not a betting sport. It's more like wear a fancy hat, drink a glass of champagne, go out and stomp divots in the you know in between the chuckers and uh, get get together with a group of friends. It's really a social thing. Well, it's, it seems it looks like a great time. It really does. Um, while we're on the topic of horses, not to get too sidetracked from trading, um, do you have, do you ever go to the thoroughbred races, uh, Gulfstream Park at all? I have not. No. Oh, uh, okay. I'm going to the thoroughbred race for a long time. Oh, I love those. I'm going to the Florida Derby on Sunday. I believe it is. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. So that should be a lot of fun. Well, uh, if you see a polo game in the next year, I'll make it a point to go to uh, a race. Oh, that would be a lot of fun. That'd be a lot and, of fun. And last time you were here, we found out that you're an opera buff. Mm. And 
I wanted to tell you, I moved to London last year and I ended up seeing Tosca. Oh, wonderful. But, but it was in English. So it, <laughs> it, you know, I was, I was sitting there listening, waiting for Visitarte and, you know, it, it just, it's just not the same when it's not in Italian. So. Yeah, uh, usually what they do these days, depending on if you're at the Met or the Lyric up in Chicago, they'll show, uh, you know, above the translation in English. Yeah. Yeah. So that you know what's happening and it makes it a little bit more audience friendly or some some uh, houses have it actually on the back of the chairs, you know, but mm -hmm. that's sort of doing it an injustice to uh, translate it to English. Yeah, it just it just lost all its uh, all, mm. all the all the magic of it. Yeah, I, you know, I, I just got super involved in it because my daughter was pursuing that, you know, so she went to uh, Miami University, you know, studied music, she went on to um, Indiana, you know, where she got her master's in vocal performance and, and uh, <laughs> can't tell you how much money I spent sending her to Austria <laughs> for the summers and Italy for the summers and uh, goodness knows all this education. So uh, after she graduates, she comes to Chicago and she's like, you know, mommy, I think I really want to be in the financial world. Oh no! <laughs> really? Back, you know? <laughs> Damn, oh my gosh! Going to a bunch of concerts and hearing stuff. So yeah, right no now kidding. she's a a wealth manager with Raymond James. She started no off way. with us going really? through all their program, and God knows there's only a zillion you know credentials and licenses you have to get. I think there's like two years of studying and getting certifications and. Uh, any, anyway, she, now she's with Raymond James, does financial planning. Once upon a time was the most irresponsible college kid in terms of balancing a checkbook, which was never. <laughs> and Don't, now tell her client. Don't tell her clients. Most responsible uh, financial planner. There is hope for our kids. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Well, from opera singer to Raymond James. It's funny. My buddy used to be the head trader for Raymond James in Vancouver. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. He's... he's uh, He's definitely not the most responsible guy in the world. I can tell you stories. <laughs> They're actually but, a really good firm, you know. I'm they are. They are. With, uh, they, they had a guy who stepped down a couple of years ago, but he was a fabulous technician just uh, in terms of thinking outside the box, in terms of the valuations of some of the companies like Amazon at the time talking about how undervalued their database was and how valuable that was, you know, wow. things like that, that people don't really look at, you know, there's just to uh, analyzing the balance sheets and stuff like that and not necessarily knowing how to value these other intangible things. So um, he, he made a, a number of really good points. Uh, maybe it was like six or seven years ago. I'm like, yeah, I can, I can get on board these fangs. I get it now. I get it now, you know? Yeah. So uh, I think he went to work for some other private firm, but I think overall it's a, a pretty tight firm. Mm -hmm. uh, Linda, have you read the latest Market Wizard book? I've not. <laughs> oh, you haven't? Oh, man. No, I haven't. Oh, is market. that the is that the unknown market wizards? Or uh, unknown something market like wizards, yeah, yeah. It's a good one. I I, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, we had we had a few of the the wizards on on the podcast previously. Uh, good people. Um, so I'll ask you this: Do you have? Is there any like um, a memory or moment that sticks out during your interview process for market wizards? Oh God, <laughs> I was so sick at the time. <laughs> oh really? You know? I, I was, I had this, oh my God, I had this chronic fatigue syndrome. It was horrid. And uh, I, I remember I, I couldn't even drive. I took the bus up to New York uh, to meet with Jack. And um, I don't even know how 
he found me. I mean, it might have been through at the time I used to go to the MTA and I'd been a trader on the exchange floors. And then I actually um, left and went upstairs, meaning uh, <laughs> my own home office, which I created, which at the time we didn't have electronic trading. The software was pretty primitive. Um, data feeds were primitive. I think I paid $1,000 a month to run a line to my house. Yeah. to transmit the data. I mean, people, you guys have a luxury now with the, you know, low cost of, yeah. of admission to the game, you know, but I'd pay a thousand dollars a month just to run the data line to my house. And then another, you know, thousand dollars in, in uh, fees and, and uh, for data fees. I mean, it just went on and on and on. So all of a sudden, uh, you know, the costs were high, but I was developing a program, you know, to, uh, to, uh, apply my type of trading and style to the things I believed in, which were using a very short term, like two period rate of change, which has a good signal to noise ratio, you know, considering some other things. And it dovetailed into this Taylor trading book that influenced a lot of my work. You know, a lot of it was sort of the early Toby Craybell, Larry Williams type of style, you know, get in. I didn't necessarily do the range expansion that Larry Williams did, but, you know, put the positions on, hold them overnight exit them the next day or the following day, that type of rhythm, you know, and uh, Jack didn't quite believe, you know, that that was could be done that way because he was a more traditional institutional technical anal you know, analyst at the time. And so I showed him my track record and I'm like, clearly there is an edge here, you know, and there's also a low standard deviation to the bottom line. And so I showed him all my statements and, and uh, stuff going back a couple of years and talked about why I, you know, developed these models that way. And um, at the time, I think we were having dinner someplace in New York and he had a little tape recorder on the table. I had no idea. I had no idea that he was writing a book, Market Wizards or anything like that. You know, I just think I was thinking, well, maybe he'll just, you know, stick a chapter in there with, you know, a couple of women or, I, you know, I, I just wasn't thinking at all those days. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I just blabbed away like I usually do and uh, answered his questions. And I took the bus back home. I think I caught the last one back, you know, be before uh you know, the terminal shut down, at least going to where I lived, which was in Southern Jersey. And um, I didn't think anything more of it. And maybe like a month later or two months later, Jack called me up and says, you know, I got a little manuscript I want you to review. And he sent me this thing that was almost verbatim, you know, uh, you know, me talking at the table. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, I didn't realize, I didn't quite realize uh, what, what he was doing. So it was, you know, something that was very helpful to me at the time, it gave me a great break because um, after that, I started managing money. Mm -hmm. And um, I had been doing business with Revco down in uh, uh, Memphis, Tennessee. They had they were pretty big entities at the time. Um, Willard Sparks used to be a major figure. And um, I, I was uh, clearing some trades through Revco that went through that office, just my own account. Okay. And um, I, I used to have like three or four different accounts in different places just because I <laughs> seemed to get caught in these deals where, uh, you know, one <laughs> firm would shut down because the river oh, floods in Chicago or exactly. Or that, you know. Oh, you know, I'm just a big believer in backup, backup, always have Definitely. several accounts funded and stuff. So um, I, I think it was Willard Sparks' son 
was connected to somebody else that was allocating money to traders. And uh, I, I actually first did an account on quote other people's money who was um the the mother this is really convoluted the mother of the guy that backed me on the uh on the Pacific Coast Stock Exchange floor so when i very first started trading and then i blew out uh, um i needed funding because the clearing firm desperately wanted their money back and uh, since i had zero balances and big deficit so they put me in touch with this guy who was one of the first to start this um, scanning of all the exchange floors for the option pricing. And he had this huge, giant uh, computer that filled a whole room in Battery wow. Park Plaza. And it would, wow. you know, scan all the exchanges. This is out of line. This is out of line, da, da, da. And then he'd you know, send me around to try and put on spreads. And of course, all the quotes just had to be adjusted. It was like really a hopeless game. You know, the market makers would laugh at me like, oh, that's not really been there, you know. <laughs> You know? I remember that. <laughs> Talk about ultimate games and rejection, you know, and yeah, this is before yeah. everything was a hundred percent automated like it is now with all these exactly. firms stuff in line. I mean, the options are perfectly priced. So there's really not the edge to doing these complex, you know, boxes and conversions and reversals and strategies like that. Butterflies, you know, it's just various ways of goofing around in my opinion. So, um, <laughs> So that's what I was doing. And um, so it turns out Morris and I became pretty good friends after me getting slammed every week by him. And uh, he, you know, I, I said, Morris, you know, I really need to show some performance on an outside account, not my own, because it doesn't really count if it's your, your own account. They want to see that you're responsible with other people's money. So I started this <laughs> trading this account of his mom's. I don't even think she knew <laughs> that it was money's place. Of course with not. Some blonde in New Jersey, you know, somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> and so after like about a year, you know, I, I showed it to the, you know, guys down at Revco. And one of the first accounts I got, believe it or not, was Pritzker's, you know, that Pritzker's now own major yeah. hotel chains. They oh, have a yeah. lot of money offshore. I, I didn't really know who they were, but they were a little bit more open-minded into alternative asset allocation, right? So I think they wow. placed like 350000 with me and now I had like three or four accounts. And then it was sort of like when the street found out that the Pritzkers had money with me, they all wanted to put money with me because they thought wow, oh, the Pritzkers yeah. must have been doing their diligent research and so forth. And I had, you know, some credibility with the book, although I'm not sure in those days that book really offered that much credibility the way I was talking there. But um but, you know, it's like performance attracts money. So yeah. you take that money, you perform. And I think that first year I did like 65% after fees. And uh, and then that attracts more money. And uh, I had a style that varied enough from the traditional CTA styles, you know, trend following or these types of things that uh, my greatest clients became fund of funds. So what the fund of funds would do is they'd pick anywhere from five to 10 managers. Uh, it could be doing agricultural spread arbitrage. You know, there was one guy that sort of specialized in that, you know, um, the trend followers, of course, fill a bucket there and I'm short-term discretionary. So when they would be losing money, I coincidentally would be making money. Um, just, I don't know why, sort of random. And so that sort of became my niche um, client, these fund of funds. And it's interesting because they are so astute, you know, in watching every single little detail. So 
I remember they come and do due diligence to my office, you know, twice a year. They want to come and make sure you've got, you know, backup and good staff and good support staff. I had one guy who did all my, uh, you know, infrastructure stuff, IT and, you know, a guy that did my execution and so forth. And the guy walks in and he's like, he had these stats of my, uh, my P&L on every single market. You know, I wasn't wow. keeping that at the time, you know, he's like, okay, well, let's see last year, the bonds were your best performing market. And this coffee was the worst performing. Why were you in this coffee trade or something like that? I'm really? like, oh, shit, I forgot about that. One, you, know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so uh, it really kept you on your toes. And I knew mm-hmm. that I had to have a certain standard of monitoring everything. And, um, you know, it, it was really insightful. Uh, it definitely kept you in line. I think if anybody's trading um, and they had, they knew that they had to be accountable, you know, at the end of every day or at the end of every week or anything to every trade that they made, somebody was seeing that. I think they exactly. would trade a very different style. You know, I don't think that they would um, uh, settle for marginal trades. I don't think that they would let losses run as much as they do. I think it would cut way back on the volatility. If you took anybody's account and you looked at their biggest loss each year, uh, it would probably be very disproportionate to their larger wins, you know, and mm-hmm. probably if you el- eliminated everybody's one or two biggest losses, you know, their profitability would would triple, you know, because that's just, I don't know, the nature of way people are. So, um, but then I have heard of cases, some, I know one or two very, very big traders out in Palm Beach, I won't mention any names, but they're well known, they've written books, very well known. And um, the same firm that had uh originally started a fund for me, 6,800 Capital was the name of that firm at the time, had started a fund for one of these other traders, and I think it had actually been a couple of years earlier. And despite this trader having a phenomenal reputation, being able to buy a mansion out on Palm Beach, he could not trade other people's monies. He just could not, you know, it was, uh, I don't know, maybe if there was self-consciousness there or befuddling him, or maybe he liked to, you know, take a little bit more heat on things. I have no idea, but it just didn't work for him. So, you know, everybody has different styles and where they're coming from. And some things work for some people. Some things don't work for the others. I, I really think it helpful if somebody had a way of being accountable with a partner or a buddy, perhaps swapping Definitely. statements at the end of the day or, um, you know, anything just to keep you mindful about uh, overdoing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that, that's very interesting. Um, how that could that could stifle like I, I could I could I think I could understand that um you know having someone looking over your shoulder or being on your statements could maybe stifle oh. with you know the, the the trader's performance totally like you were you were mentioning yeah and and that's what I was totally. that's what I was kind of getting at uh when I was asking you earlier Linda between like you managing your own account versus managing someone else's money and, and if you had a preference or to you it's just different it's just a difference well I loved having a fund I you know yeah. I liked I'm the type of person that likes to, uh, you know, bring the apple for the teacher, you know, put it on our desk and have her say, hey, good job. Look, you know, you outperformed everybody else in the class. I'm like, oh, thank you. You know, so I I, I like that, you know, um, mm-hmm. right now I'm I shut down my fund primarily because 
Um, the data fees got so excessive. I had three or four different platforms I'm running, software, all different sorts of uh, things that they could do. And for each different one, I had to pay a whole full set of data fees. And I had to do this for three other people besides me. And so when the exchange went to this um, model of the professional fees, you know, all of a sudden I was paying like $6,000 a month just for the data fees. And I was like, really, wait a minute, you know, can't I consolidate some of these? It was just so unfair to have that big jump up. It was actually even a little bit more than that. And then uh, just, it it got to be so cumbersome. Uh, The audits, you know, the exchanges starting wanting to know the, uh, you know, the P and L on every little market or product you traded, you know, the, the audit process and the the audits just doubled in, in cost, you know, and the attorneys doubled in cost. And oh yeah, because you always have to have attorneys. You've got the blue sky laws and different things like that with your disclosure documents and updating and so forth. Uh, And the accountant, you know, the accountants were just going crazy. And all of a sudden I had this ridiculous amount of layer of fees. And I thought, you know, maybe that's God's sign of saying, you know, just close things down and, you know, go back to just doing your own thing. I had a good run. You know, it was, it was, uh, and a lot of tasks were taking my time that weren't necessarily trading oriented. And I just really enjoyed the pure trading part. So, uh, that's, that's the way that came about. So I liked, I liked doing it at that point in my life, you know, and, uh, now I'm sort of a little bit up in the air. Uh, you know, I've, I've been trading, but low leverage, um, you know, not running my full program. I, I do have the most fabulous assistant in the world. That took me like three years to find him, Kyle. So, uh, you know, he, he, the first two years we were trading and having fun. And then, um, (laughs) I had to have a hip replacement last year, you know, and do some things like that. So I needed to take a little break and stuff. So I said, Kyle, you know, I want to keep you forever, but you know, I, I can't trade for these periods here. And, um, so he and my husband, Damon, who you just mentioned, Mm -hmm. you interviewed, uh, Damon's been in the markets even longer than I have. And he's really good with market profile work, really good. So probably the best I've seen. And so, uh, he and Kyle have this little trading room where they kind of keep a steady pitter patter all day and, keep people company and point out the, you know, the areas in the market that they're looking at, you know, he plays rock and roll in the start off the day and rock and roll at the end of the day. And it's, it's kind of fun. We actually have a professional drummer in there from the Steve Miller band and another guy plays bass. I don't know, it attracted all these professional musicians, a professional flautist who plays with a symphony. I'm like, who knew, Uh, you know, so it's a real great group of people, just sort of a small family. So Kyle's busy uh, doing that with Damon, but he'll be there, you know, when I want to come back full tilt boogie. Very nice. Now we'll have to get Damon back on the podcast and and bring the band so, you know, they can (laughs) maybe play the joker for us you know from the steve Miller oh he band. he knows all the songs it's pretty funny yeah, yeah we'd, we'd love to him have him to play the joker for us it's pretty you know? funny because i had a friend from uh australia just out here for the last two weeks her name's mandy and i met her uh, five years ago when i was speaking in melbourne and she's actually a trading coach not just markets but really could be a life coach probably the most perceptive insightful person you know i've ever had the pleasure of interacting with so uh, i'm like hey mandy you know 
come back over to the United States. She'd only been up there in Illinois when I was up there. Now I'm down in Florida. I'm like, come on and check out the horse shows and let's have some fun and stuff. So she came down. And at that time, uh, Steve Miller band was performing just down in Pompano. And so, you know, he got us tickets. So, you know, we went to the rock concert there. And uh, so when she was leaving the other night, I said, you know, Damon, you have to pull out that picture of when you were on stage in your white jumpsuit with these, you know, open down to the crotch there (laughs) (laughs) and this fringe hanging from the arms, you know, I mean, it's like a who I said, you got to find that picture from Mandy. So then he comes back with this whole packet of stuff I had never seen. I'm like, damn it, you've been holding out on me. Where he's playing up on stage. I'm like, oh, my God, you know, long hair, mustache, you know, probably about 50 pounds lighter, this little skinny toothpick. It was hysterical, you know. So he he did that for a year and a half of touring on the road. And uh, but then that's a total burnout job. It really is insane. It's just really hard. So then he packed it in and that's when he went down to the exchange floor. But he continued on weekends to play in a wedding band. Oh, no way. (laughs) Yes. Through playing in this wedding band. I mean, he knows every song under the sun. So it's really fun. He plays lead guitar, doesn't sing, but uh, that's his gig. Yeah, we'll have to have him come back. Yeah, definitely shout, on the shout out to sure. Damon. Shout out to Kyle. Um, <laughs> yeah, definitely. yeah, like, like I'll, I, I'll put both of them in touch with you. Kyle's a hoot to listen to too because he, uh, oh my goodness, I, if you got a second, I'll tell you about Kyle because it took yeah, me yeah. forever to find him. I'm Brett Steenbarger, you know, the family offices. Finally, I threw a family office down here in Florida and connections of connections. You know, I came across Kyle who had just gone through the CFA program, sort of a, an advanced business degree down at one of these Florida universities. But he'd always be, you know, on his charts in class and stuff. And he just loves charts and he's quiet. So my two main ingredients, you know, for somebody to be assistant, you know, loves charts and is quiet and is super good at execution. That's Kyle. So when I first met him, he, he came up to my house, not an ounce of fat on his body, mind you, this, you know, and, and wearing a suit, a little pencil tie, glasses, <laughs> very short hair, you know, looking like the ultimate nerd geek, right? I'm like, ah, oh, this might be my man, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you see him now, he lives about an hour north of us, like up in Port St. Lucie area. And uh, right this week, he's out scouting wedding venues in Colorado because his fiance, who's his original girlfriend from 10 years ago, uh, they're finally going to get married. So now if you saw him, He's got long hair down to here, still not an ounce of fat on him. The glasses are are gone. And uh, he came to my house, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago and he's wearing those pants that <laughs> have the crotch down by your knees. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> and then the, the jogger pants or something. I, I mean, it was just kind of taking me aback because it was a more progressive fashion statement there, you know, and I'm like, Oh, you go guy, you go. So last year at the start of the year, he had never really been a swimmer, didn't bike, didn't do anything. And so he put it on his list at the start of the year that he was going to do a half triathlon at the end of the year. No kidding. Yes. So he practiced swimming all year, you know, ran some races, practiced running, which he said he hated at the time, you know, uh, bicycled. And then uh, I think it was the start of uh, December up 
outside of Orlando, they had this tri uh, half triathlon and they all went up there and he finished it. So I thought that was a really, really cool story about, you know, no limitations, you know, you're not uh, skilled in any of these things yet. You put it on your list, your bucket list, and you can go out there and knock it off. So he'd be a good one to interview just because he's uh, such a, just a very consistent thinker. He probably caught on to all the technicals and the work that I do faster than anybody I've seen to the point where I would trust his work more than my work. You know, <laughs> if I didn't have a good night's sleep, I'm like, Kyle, you know, <laughs> what's, our, what's our our play for the day here, you know, and yeah. uh, he, he can just prattle it off all day long. He's got this little tape loop with him and Damon running the room. And I'm like, you know, I'm just going to lurk and I'm just going to listen and do my own trading as I hear them all day. So he, he's a good kid. He just, you know, in terms of somebody that's kind of come up, you know, for the last five years and he does some trading on his own on the side. I know he likes trading options and so forth. He's very modest, you know, uh, but you know, just somebody else's journey, you know, that's not in a market wizard's book. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. If you, if you vouch for him, Linda, that's, that's good enough for us. Definitely. Um, big shout out to Kyle. Uh, great job. Yeah. Damon, uh, Damon, Linda, I had, I got such a kick out of him, like uh, in our podcast interview, it, he was, he's so, like, just from being the musician to the stories he had, he was telling us the story, which you were even mentioning, you know, having the, you know, back with the, like the early electronic trading days and he had to get like a, this huge wire through like his library into his bedroom. So he could like wake up at 4am and like check the charts or, or something, another like that. Yeah. He put see. the Globex machine in the closet. Yeah. The Globex machine in the yeah. closet. Yeah. He's got great, That's great uh, stories from the floor. You know, he used to do all these big players execution, Monroe Trout, Paul Tudor oh, Jones. Yeah. Yeah. He did all the execution for them. In fact, that's how I met him. You know, he was a, uh, broker down in the S&P pit, you know, he had traded for himself before that, but he's a broker in the S&P pit. And so for years, you know, he handled all my orders. We, we didn't have any relationship until maybe 15, 16 years later. So definitely <sighs> nice to have somebody else that's in the markets, you know? Yeah, I, I bet it is. That's really cool. Uh, Linda, I'll get you out of here. In a moment, I want to ask you a little bit about um, just a couple of books, because, you know, when I when I went on your website, you have a, a list of recommended books uh, and not just trading stuff. And so, some of the books you have on there, I, I love and one of my favorite books of all time, which I want to ask you about right off the stop, uh, The Art of Learning by Josh uh, Wayskin. Do you want to just comment on that book and why you have it on there? Well, first of all, it's a it's a very short read. It's easy to read. It's simple. I mean, anybody could read that book in a relatively, uh, you know, one day type of thing. And um, I, I thought that was a very inspirational book as well, the way he was able to adapt from uh, being a chess player and, and how how he went about becoming uh, so uh, proficient and expert in chess uh, to uh, martial arts field is push hands type of style and then um, excelling in that. And uh, I thought it was very thoughtfully written. So uh, I think that anybody who reads that, it's going to start triggering little ideas in your head. Did it do that with you? It, ab it absolutely did. I, I, I hundred percent agree with the, the inspiration and just how somebody could transition from, you know, he was a chess prodigy then to becoming a world champion in, uh, in push hands. 
And then just his thought process and like the, just the processes of his like practice and uh, his discipline and just, you know, all those things that he went through. I mean, it was highly inspirational to me. And I think like why I've had success and or I remember reading it when I was playing poker, like seriously. And I, I think it really took my game to like another level. Um, and what's funny is it had nothing to do with poker, right? Nothing to do with trading. And, and that's why I kind of like reading these type of things too, because like, you can at least for myself, you can improve yourself uh, in a certain discipline uh, reading something that doesn't even seem like it really correlates. But even though this one, I guess, you know, a little more. Well, what you see with all of these um, superstars, be it sports or chess or or anything like that, um, is that um, excellent concentration and focus. That's number one. So if you want to be in a performance or in a discipline like trading, we can control how many outside distractions we allow into our arena. You know, our environment is one of the very few things that we can control. And so, uh, you know, I see these people on Twitter intraday or, you know, surfing social media or the internet or blogs or so forth. And um, I don't think they realize how, um, how, harmful that is you know overall um you have to learn to think for yourself and you have to learn to see and feel your own roadmap you have to believe in something that is your work and then you'll be able to trade it on better leverage or know when it's not working and when to you know bail or you know apply uh, more rigorous money management so all Humans, one of our problems just in general is that we're very susceptible with these cognitive biases. And, you know, people don't realize all the time how many biases that are coming in and interfering with uh, their thought processes. That's why for me, it was really important to have models, you know, statistical models that I could say, oh, the model's saying, you know, here's a little, you know, setup for a long trade. And I can't be bearish and, you you know, trade that way. Right. But in general, um, these biases are influencing you, whether you want to believe it or not, you know, your subconscious. So if you hear some, I don't even listen to TV. I don't want to hear these guys, you know, on the financial news network or anything, yeah. <laughs> because I might hear somebody and somehow that voice is in the back of my head and it'll either be like, oh, yeah, you know, I can see, I can see a bearish opening there or Else it'll be, oh, I have a really good setup, but I can't do it now because it's already priced into the market because it was already put out there on the TV, you know? So it's a lose-lose situation for me. If I hear anybody, I don't want to know anybody's opinion or, uh, you know, or thoughts just because I have to trade my own, you know, style and model. And some people are very good at tuning that out. I had another gentleman that, you know, first came and worked with me when I had my fund Um, Rick Jeanette, and he had actually worked for another turtle show um, before he came to my shop. So he was sort of instrumental in helping me uh, learn to work more size. But he would always walk in my office with the Wall Street Journal in one pocket and another newspaper in the other pocket because he had to ride the train from uh, Philadelphia over to New Jersey and then get into my office. And uh, I would have never been able to look at a newspaper or anything. It would, you know, just might be a little bit of distortion for me but other people it's no problem so uh, i can only speak for myself Mm -hmm. yeah i i think it's a great point you make and i'm the same way linda i i really just try to i don't like 
you know, listen to anybody else or, you know, block everything else out. Um, And I think it is just that awareness of just, yeah, I mean, we we could have like these little biases or just you hear a comment from somebody and it's it's sitting with you and you don't even know it. Um, And yeah, I try to be as like ruthless as possible uh, with these things. (laughs) Um, All right, let me ask you about this book. I thought this one was interesting. And we may have actually touched on this in the first podcast. I'm not sure. But uh, I'm going to ask you about this book, uh, The Secrets of Turf Handicapping. Oh, that's that's fun. It's just a a different look on uh, betting strategies. Mm-hmm. And again, I like things that uh, deal with statistics. Yeah. And uh, so it's it, it it deals with that arena. You know, I haven't read that one for ages, but it's um, yeah, it's just I thought something fresh. Yeah. Did, did it give you any different um maybe ideas or different ways of looking at the market perhaps? No, I just like seeing the way other systems are organized. I like seeing, you know, other people's types of modeling that they do, Uh, you know, statistical work. I believe there was different handicapping things for when it was muddy, you know, they had a a different hand and and the type of uh, shoe that the horse was wearing. These little details that other people wouldn't necessarily bother to look at. So it's, it's the same thing. You think it's hard to find an edge these days in the markets because, you know, there's a zillion quants out there with billion dollar hedge funds and supercomputers just grinding away all day long. Um, but you can't look at it that way. You have to think that it just takes one little twist that other people really aren't looking at or considering. Mm-hmm. And uh, that might give you an edge that these uh, you know, the, the quants don't pick up because in general, um, you know, the way the quants work is they're grinding huge amounts of data, you know, and it could be everything, time of day functions, uh, you know, um, throw in a few uh, fundamental variables, you know, you know, technical stuff, I mean, volume points, there's so many different things that you can include in these models, but they're still doing it across uh, these broad swaths of data. Um, And you as a as a market participant can actually recognize when things or conditions are changing a little bit faster than uh, some of these models can recognize. See, Mm -hmm. so we, it's all about relationships. It's all about perceiving this data point relative to that data point or this data point relative to this indicator or, you know, this market relative to this market. So everything that we do in the markets is really about processing relationships and, you know, at some point you have to have a threshold at which that relationship stops working or doesn't. But I think an experienced trader can recognize a little bit sooner when that's the case, as well as recognizing when perhaps an, an aberration is occurring. And in general, mm-hmm. if there's an aberration or an outlier, something that the market has not seen before, uh, perhaps a radical increase in volatility, a very large gap. Uh, you want to go with that. You know, mm-hmm. you want to go trade in the direction of that. So uh, in the early part of, you know, 2000 to 2008, we had been pretty banded in our range of yields. 
Okay. And then there was a period where the yield on the 30 year bonds started pushing below 4%. And that had not happened for decades, you know, but it was just now we're breaking outside of that band because we like having limits. We like overbought, oversold, you know, <laughs> wholesale retail, but now we started defying that. And so your first instinct is like, oh, you know, these bonds are too high. They've got to come back down, you know, and push the yields push back above 4%. And that was not the case. You know, it was an outlier that was giving powerful information and, and, the real trick was to go in the direction and buy those bonds, even though they had not been up at these levels in our lifetime. So um, I think that it's easier for humans to do that than uh, than the machines. Of course, the machines are free of cognitive biases. And then you have that category of artificial intelligence, which everybody seems to think is the cat's meow. And it really hasn't panned out to be that, as you would think. So you have these uh, major players like Paul Tudor Jones and and uh, big entities. And I think that they've been mildly disappointed with the results from some of this artificial intelligence thinking. And part of the problem is, you know, it's only updating by the last updates as well you know so how sensitive is it going to be to a regime change you know uh, so you know don't i guess i'm saying that as a smaller trader don't feel like you don't have any edge at all you actually have an edge you know that can't be um gotten by you know, these very large funds, they just can't move the money like that. They can't capitalize on these things um, in such an expedient way. Most of the algorithmic trading that you see, everybody's like, oh, the algorithms are going for the stops and stuff like that. And that's such a crock <laughs> of shit. I'm sorry. Exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. Damon's, Thank uh, you. Damon's partners, original partners were the guys that started GetGo. And GetGo was the original yeah. high frequency trading exactly. firm. Yeah. yeah, I, 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 you know, guy that used to work for me went to go work for GetGo and and all that type of thing. They're just grinding it out like little minute by minute. You know, originally yeah. it was a market making type of algorithm, and there's no yeah. edge to that anymore. Then you yeah. started to do a little bit more uh, technical things like breakout from standard deviation functions, mm -hmm. but very short term. It's not the type of um, mechanism that's going to drive price to a new level or a new yeah. valuation level, like that higher time frame, uh, you know, exactly. mutual fund player. And so I think people credit these uh, with far too much. And um, the other major bulk of algorithmic activity tends to be from execution. Uh, exactly. You know, things like VWAP, you know, that's yeah. pretty but they have so many other types of execution uh, algorithms now. And that really kind of accounts for the bulk of the activity. There's still a human, you know, pushing the button behind that. So, uh, you know, just stay to your own game and don't try to think, oh, you know, who's doing what and, you exactly. know, who's got to cover or anything like yeah. that. Just stick to your own game. And um, you just have to find one little relationship that you can uh, – kind of do a little arb with or, you know, yep. uh, get a little edge from. And that's all it takes. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's so great to have someone of your stature reinforce these principles because we teach every day and people are just reaching for, you know, they're reaching for the, the magic, uh, you know, elixir or the, you know, the holy grail. And it's just hard work. And finding a little bit of an edge, and I'm so happy that you, you know, that you, <laughs> someone of your stature just kind of backed up everything. I'll, I'll give you one last analogy for fun. Um, I like playing bridge, 
I haven't played much, you know, in the last couple of years, but I used to play. And uh, now bridge is what you'd call a closed system. You just have a deck with 52 cards. And it sounds like you also have experience with poker. Okay. Closed system, 52 cards. There's 680 billion initial combinations that can be dealt. All right. 680 billion. And if you were to add all four players, you know, the first uh, hand is something like 740 trillion combinations. If you were to look at a chessboard, again, a closed system, no outside variables, I think it's like 280 billion possible moves by two people, just the first four moves. So the first four moves that people can, um, that two people can make, there's 280 billion different combinations. So with the markets, when we get caught up into this linear thinking, oh, a little bull flag on the five minute chart, you know, I want a condition or a pattern or a setup. I mean, there's infinite billions of different combinations. And that's why they say that the same thing never occurs twice the same way. So the market's going to always uh, repeat itself, but not exactly, if that makes sense. And, um, you know, we want to have something that we can latch our hands on, a little Bollinger Band strategy, do the breakout and da-da-da-da-da. And uh, you, you can't think like that. So one of the beneficial things to study if you're newer is more market profile type of work. Personally, I don't use it, but I think it's exceptional at, you know, showing concepts, you know, categorizing uh, days, you know, into maybe six to eight different groups. You know, what does a normal day look like? What does a normal variation day look like? What does a trend day look like? Today has been a trend day up and it has a certain characteristic, you know, so you can start to put things into different buckets. And then I think that really helps uh, feel comfortable with a, a short-term context at least. So there you go. Excellent. Uh, that was, that was great. That was great tidbits. You were just dropping right there. I'm going to ask you about, I believe there's a book written on this person. Um, I'll ask you about her, then we'll get, we'll get going. Uh, Hetty Green, I believe <laughs> her name. So <laughs> I, I made the mistake of mentioning that on Twitter. Oh my gosh. I have to tell you a funny story. I don't know. Go ahead, go. Yeah. I was just feeling in a very flippant little uh, mood. And at the end of the day, you know, my friend Mandy's in town and uh, she, you know, she's always like, oh, you know, she has some buddies on Twitter and stuff. And I had pulled it up and somebody had posted these rules of Jesse Livermore or something, you know, <laughs> he's the greatest trader of all times, you know? And I'm like, he did die broke. I mean, I said like yeah. four words, you know, yeah. and you would have thought that I shot Jesus Christ or something. <laughs> that I got. I'm like, Jesus, you know, I'm like, yeah. it's a great book and there's great quotes, but the dude yeah. lacked money management, you know, yeah. he went bankrupt three times and exactly. he broke all his rules. Anybody can yeah. put out good rules, but what's yeah. one of his rules? Don't average a loss. And yeah. what is he doing? He's an averaging loss Average all the way down until he goes bankrupt. Don't take no. tips from other people. And he's trading off tips from other people. I'm like, ah, you know, How whatever. You- I said, you know, there, there are other unique stories out there. She's just a little bit of a... <clears throat> a uh an outlier they used to call her i ha- I don't know how i ended up with this book in my library it was there like 30 years ago or something the witch wow. of wall street, you know well that was I, i've heard title <laughs> like the witch of wall street and i'm hmm, what's this about and i, I read, read all these about, rumors about her you know uh, you know she uh just say she came from a very 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 strict quaker family very yeah. very strict 
upbringing, uh, wore black all the time and uh, was frugal as could be. Exactly. uh, You know, just a a real patient, patient value investor. She just had common sense. She goes, I would wait till, uh," and she had a modest inheritance, you know, to begin with. So she had working capital, but you know, I, I mean, she took that up like billions of dollars to in today's dollar. Wow. And um, she would wait, patience, patience, patience till like there was this big fallout in yeah. the market and flush and everybody's bearish and nobody wanted anymore. And she would go and buy real estate and buy bonds and buy yeah. stocks and stuff. And then, you know, as the market came back and when it started rallying and the proverbial ducks are quacking, you know, yeah, everybody exactly. wants it again. She's like, okay, fine. I'll feed it out to you. Exactly. To you. <laughs> and then she'd so, wait like another couple of years till he had the yeah. implosion in the cycle again. I'm like, you know, there's all lots of stories out there. I'm like, at least she didn't have drawdowns, you know? So. Exactly. I, I heard the best stories about her were like that. She had stock certificates sewn into the lining of her clothing. <laughs> right. And the other one was that, she was so cheap that her son had all this dental, these dental issues, and she didn't, she refused to pay, you know, to get I think son. it was something like with his leg where he had fractured his, his ankle leg. That's what it was. Yeah. Something. And, but at the time, the doctors had said that there was nothing that could be done or, or something oh, okay. along those lines. Okay. Who knows what the real story is? I mean, it was her son. I don't think she would, you know, totally, yeah. uh, leave him to die but uh yeah who knows? I hope so yeah don't talk back to your mom she exactly <laughs> she might not pay for dental care <laughs> exactly what uh when when did she live what, um what time period i think it was the late 1800s and i okay. think she might have died in 1919 i'm just off the top of my head so i don't think she was there during the uh the crash you know the implosion in uh, 1929 but i think it was that period the railroads were big big uh you know uh, uh, entities then and the stocks the railroad stocks you know huge swings in these things and i think that she actually ended up bailing out new york city (laughs) i don't know why they were going bankrupt or bust but that's one of the stories that she was one of the very few that had cash to come and aid uh, bankrupt uh, New York. Wow, interesting. Yeah. So real, real early days, probably, mm-hmm. probably even before the uh, like the ticker machine was invented, or because uh, I think Edison made that, um, uh, like the, the the tape ticker. I, I know this because my son learned it in school. He's like, "Oh, Dad, you you see what I learned about the oh, that's cool the stock market." Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it's cool. also remarkable, and you, I mean said this was a woman you know women didn't vote they didn't have yeah. any rights they weren't allowed into the uh, fr- the men's fraternity but here she's kind of rubbing elbows with jp morgan or somebody else you know as they're trying to put together to bail out new york and i think that's what really makes her a story more astounding women weren't yeah. given responsibility mm-hmm. for money you know they they weren't taught anything about this but i think her father had actually uh given her quite a bit of education on investing and you know had taken her under uh, his wing so uh but i did think it was kind of remarkable here's this you know amazing story it's uh Mm -hmm. i I think they should make a movie out of it she was a very rough personality she wasn't charming (laughs) well back then could you imagine dealing with male traders back then I mean, good grief. Like, you know, I mean, I don't think people recognize just e- even with Jesse Livermore, even though his book is wonderful and so forth. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
it wasn't just the bucket shops, you know, because he kind of graduated from that level, but they had pools and these pools, mm-hmm. you know, would mass together and, you know, yeah. get on these campaigns to drive exactly. prices higher, you know, or, or cause a break in the market by all selling at once. And he was part of one of those pools. He just, you know, did it on super, super heavy duty leverage, which is probably why he blew out three times, you know, yeah. of course he had his mental uh, demons as well. So I don't make light of that, but, um, you know, there was a lot of uh, unfair advantages that you wouldn't necessarily have these days. Exactly. Yeah. yeah well, this is before the the SEC, um, right? And this is before, like, oh, I couldn't yeah. even imagine as wild, wild West. I mean, literally, I guess probably Wild West during those times. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I guess with that, this will conclude today's episode of Confessions <laughs> of a Market Maker. If you guys enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it for us. If you'd like to join a supportive and professional community of traders. You can join us at microefutures.com. Linda, uh, let the listeners know where they can find you and anything else you want them to know. Uh, you know, I have a website. I haven't updated anything on that website for a couple of years, but it's there. That's the way that you can reach me. If you wanted to send an email, I have a contact thing and, you know, any emails will get to me there. And um, if you're interested in Kyle and Damon's trading room, I think that's set up through there. And uh, I am on Twitter, you know, uh, Linda Rashke. I, it's so funny, you know, when they came out, I get an imposter every day. Somebody at the end of the day, I get on to see, okay, who, you know, who do I have to send in a report to? Walt Deemer is always contacting me. He's a who, you know, he's like, oh, Linda, you got another imposter, you know, his message, <laughs> you know, so I'm like, okay, uncle, I'll do that little blue check mark. It means nothing. <laughs> it really means nothing except that I'm paying Elon a seven bucks a month or whatever that thing costs, you know, yeah. hoop de doo Oh, so, yes, I'm on Twitter and, and you can reach me uh, if you want to send an email through my website, <laughs> conveniently tiled lindarashke.com or actually .net. Yes. There you go. There you go. Um, and go get her book too. Go get Trading Sardines. Yeah, um, great book. It's not on Amazon. Yeah. Oh, what? Not on Amazon? That's no, I, I think I only have a couple hundred copies left on my uh, website. Maybe Maybe next year I'll do a version that can be on Amazon and not have yeah. anything to do with it. So kind of right, a little bit pain in the butt has setting up the fulfillment center and everything, mm-hmm. but you know, this is how we learn about other businesses, right? Yep. I learned, I did self-publishing I printed it, you know, I got the layout guy, uh, the fulfillment center, all the little moving parts, you know, and um, that is, I'm, I'm, div- I'm digressing now, but I learned so much about the explosion in fulfillment centers, you know, eight to 10 years ago, amazing story if you research those obviously amazon now is you know really a huge entity there but um it's incredible if you uh ever see a tour of one of these things you know which you can go online and see them i mean they're just you know fifty thousand square foot things in the storage and the way they uh it's all robot you know all robots going to this bin and pulling this item down and it's uh pretty amazingly automated it's got to be a little cash cow for these uh companies Huh. Interesting. Just, just robots. It's no uh, robots are doing all the work at, at most of them. Yeah. You can, yeah. you can, uh, I saw, I saw one YouTube video. It was pretty impressive. You know how they didn't run into each other. It's all 100% computerized. These little things that go, and then they go up to this bin and pull this item out of that box, you know, and bring it back to the thing to be uh, wrapped and shipped. And, you know, when you, when you actually purchase, you know, my book, it goes right to the payment processing and then to the 
place that generates the shipping label. It automatically verifies the address and it comes out with something that gets put on top of the packaging. It's it's really incredible. Fascinating world we're in. JJ, party mm-hmm. words? Oh, thank you so oh. much for being with us. Yay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, JJ. No problem. No, we're just, we're just, every time, you know, uh, you know, I tell people in our trading room, you know, we've got Lidorachi, they just call you LBR, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's like LBJ, you know, it's like, you're, you're very well known. And, and, you know, the, I always know, you know when it's a, uh, a solicitation phone call, because they're like, is this Linda? Ra, ra. Yeah. you know it's like yeah. okay goodbye <laughs> so I, I just all i have to say is you know oh we're we're speaking to lbr and everyone's like wow wow cool you know so we're really, uh, well really i wish your gang uh well it sounds like you have a good group there have fun with everybody and uh so yeah i'll get you kyle and damon's contact sounds good yeah we're a little uh little steve miller on uh on the next podcast <laughs> would be great yeah excellent excellent so for linda Raschke. I'm Paulie Walnuts. He's the gorilla of House Street. You stop, though. So.